The year is 2009, and the world continues to reel from the financial meltdown that started when stock prices began to tumble in 2008, pushing economies around the globe into the Great Recession. In the U.S., Barack Obama is inaugurated as the nation's 44th president and becomes the first African-American to hold that office. Meanwhile, in The Hague, the International Criminal Court issues an arrest warrant for Sudanese President Omar Hassan al-Bashir for committing crimes against humanity in Darfur, leading to his becoming the first sitting head of state to be indicted war crimes. And in that year of 2009, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama went to Lynn Nottage's Ruined, a drama centered around four women struggling to overcome the physical, sexual, and emotional damages that the civil wars in the Democratic Republic of the Congo inflicted on scores of women like them. My name is Jan Simpson. Welcome to All the Drama, a podcast about the plays and musicals that have won American theater's highest accolade, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. Rape and other acts of violence against women were used as weapons of war even before Euripides chronicled the tragedy of such atrocities in the Trojan women. Nottage had originally intended to write a modern-day version of Breck's women and war play Mother Courage and Her Children. Written at the start of World War II, Breck's anti-war allegory tells the story of a 17th century woman seeking to profit by selling goods to soldiers on all sides of the Thirty Years' War, but instead ending up losing everything including the lives of her children. Wanting to ground her play in the realities of contemporary events, Nottage and her director and friend, Kate Worski, traveled to Uganda to interview female survivors of the sexual warfare in the Congo who'd fled to rescue camps there. As they listened to those stories, Nottage's idea for her play moved away from Breck's allegorical approach to a more intimate look at the effects such brutality can have on individual lives. Ruined is set in a small mining town where a woman named Mama Nadi operates a bar and brothel that catered to soldiers on all sides of the surrounding conflict. Most of the women who work for her have been kidnapped from their home villages and brutally assaulted before finding a kind of safe space with her while they struggle to reclaim some portion of their dignity. One dreams of marrying a regular customer and leading an ordinary life. Another hopes to save up enough money to pay for an operation that will repair the damage caused by repeated physical abuse. And a third struggles with putting the past behind her. Their desires come to a climax when the warring factions issue ultimatums that force Mama Nadi to choose sides. Lynn Nottage was born in Brooklyn on November 2, 1964, to Ruby Nottage, a schoolteacher, and Wallace Nottage, a child psychologist. She attended the prestigious private school St. Anne's, which prides itself on integrating the arts throughout its curriculum. 
but she later transferred to the Fiorello H. LaGuardia High School, the city's public high school that specializes in the performing arts. And it was there that she wrote her first full-length play about an African-American Shakespeare company traveling through the South. Storytelling had always been an important part of Nottage's life, from listening to her grandmother tell stories in the kitchen of the Brownstone, where Nottage, her husband Tony Gerber, a filmmaker, and their family still live, to making up stories of her own with her childhood friend Jonathan Lethem, who would grow up to make her a character in his semi-autobiographical novel, The Fortress of Solitude, which was later made into a musical that played at the Public Theater in 2014. Still, Nottage entered Brown University as a pre-med student, but that didn't last long. She switched majors when professors in some of the literature courses she took for fun urged her to pursue her writing. One of those professors was the playwright Paula Vogel, who became a mentor and remains a lifelong friend. Unsure of how to turn her passion for writing and storytelling into a sustainable career, Nottage applied to both the Columbia School of Journalism and the Yale School of Drama. She ended up at Yale, but has said that she had a mixed experience there. She was only the second black woman to go through the playwriting program, and she often felt that the kinds of plays she wrote weren't fully appreciated. When she graduated from Yale in 1989, Nottage took a job in the press office of the human rights organization Amnesty International. She spent four years there writing reports, press releases, and newspaper editorials. Then, in 1993, a photographer brought in some images from a battered women's shelter, and when Nottage realized that Amnesty couldn't do anything to help those women, she worked out her frustration by writing a short play on domestic abuse that she called Poof. She sent it to the New Plays Festival at the Actors Theater in Louisville, Kentucky, and it won the award for the best 10-minute play. That convinced her that she could successfully combine her passions for social activism and playwriting. So she quit her job, cashed in her 401k, and committed herself to writing full-time, supplementing her income with temp work. In 1995, her play Crumbs from the Table of Joy premiered at Second Stage. It's now being given its first New York revival at Keene Company, where it's scheduled to play through the end of this month. But her real breakthrough came in 2003, when Intimate Apparel premiered at Center Stage in Baltimore. Inspired in part by the experience of Nottage's great-grandmother, who had supported herself by sewing lingerie after she immigrated from Barbados to the United States, Intimate Apparel told the story of Esther, a black seamstress at the turn of the last century who sews fancy underwear for clients who range from wealthy white patrons to black prostitutes. But what Esther really wants is to find a man who will love her and to earn enough money to open a business that won't put her at the beck and call of others. After a stop at South Coast Rep, the play opened at the Roundabout Theater in 2004. It won the New York Drama Critics and Outer Critics Circle Awards, and Viola Davis picked up an Obie and a Drama Critics Award for her performance as Esther. 
It is now one of the most produced plays in the country, and last year, Nottage collaborated with the composer Ricky Ian Gordon on an opera version that premiered at Lincoln Center and later ran on PBS's Great Performances series. In 2007, Nottage was awarded a MacArthur Genius Grant. That was also the year that Ruin premiered at the Goodman Theater in Chicago. Two years later, it moved to the Manhattan Theater Club, where it was extended nine times. The play won just about every award in sight, including the Lucille Lortel, Obie, New York Drama Critics, Drama Desk, and Outer Critics Circle Awards, and, of course, the Pulitzer. It probably would have won the Tony, too, if it had been moved to Broadway. In the years since then, Ruin has had production across the country, in London, Canada, and Australia, where the production featured some actors who had fled the Congo and settled in Queensland. Meanwhile, Nottage has produced five major works since Ruined, including the book for the current musical MJ, the Michael Jackson musical, and Sweat, a play about the deindustrialization of America that also won a Pulitzer in 2017, making Nottage the only woman to have won the Pulitzer Prize for drama twice. So you can imagine how thrilled I was when she agreed to talk with me about Ruined. Hello, Lynn Nottage. Welcome to All the Drama. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here with you. I'm going to start right off by asking if you remember how you got the news that Ruined had won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, Yeah, absolutely. I remember that day. How can I forget? I was sitting home and I didn't even really know that Ruined was in the running to win the Pulitzer Prize because it's a play that is set in the Democratic Republic of Congo. It has no American characters. And so I didn't think that it qualified. If my memory serves me correctly, I received a call from the Associated Press. Oh. And they said, how do you feel to have just won the Pulitzer Prize? And I was like, oh, (laughs) I was, you know, kind of surprised and astonished. Did winning the prize have any effect on your future work in the immediate sense? Obviously not in the long term, but did it come with pressure? You know, it's it's really an interesting question because I, I think that awards are always welcome and they're always wonderful, but they are tricky. You know, we always need affirmation as artists, but once all of the fanfare has died down, then you have to really get back to the basics and figure out how you're going to approach your your practice with humility and honesty and grace. I looked at the Pulitzer Prize very much as a a doorway, you know, a door to wider possibilities, but I knew that that door could be shut at any moment. Hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, I think that at the time, it was still very, very hard in the American theater to find spaces that would center the voices of Black women. And I know the uphill battle it was to just get Ruin produced. And I think in part, it ended up at the Goodman Theater because Kate Worski, who was the director, had a slot. 
and she told them the play that she wanted to do was ruined. And I don't know that the theater would have naturally gravitated toward a play that was about Black African women. And so after the play won the award, I thought, is it going to continue to be as difficult for me to find theaters who will center the voices of characters that I'm invested in? Did it make it easier? You know, I think the honest answer is, yes, it did make it easier. I think that I was, as an artist, seen in new light. I was invited into spaces that I hadn't previously inhabited. I was asked to speak at universities. I was given other honors that I don't think would have come without the Pulitzer Prize. The play was such a success when it played at Manhattan Theater Club here in New York. It was extended multiple times, but it didn't transfer to Broadway. Was that something that you wanted or were you content with its successful off-Broadway run? You know, I always had mixed feelings because I didn't write Ruined as a play with sort of commercial aspirations because it's a tough play. It's about gender-specific human rights violations. It's about women whose bodies have been used as tools in a war. And I always wondered whether a commercial stage was the right place to explore that difficult subject matter. And so on one hand, it's like, yes, I think that the story is important. And I think that the characters' voices needed to be amplified. And I think that the audience's desire to see the play on a larger stage. But that said, I always had mixed feelings about it entering into the commercial realm. In some ways, it felt a tad exploitative to me. But that said, I do think that it belonged on a larger stage. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Some critics, and I know you've heard this before, have said that the ending was too hopeful. And the thing that really interested me about that was because so many of the Pulitzer winners on previous episodes, there's been controversy about the endings of their plays. And I wondered what made you decide to end the play in the way you did, and if you had any pushback. Yeah, I think that the pushback primarily came from the critics who probably couldn't imagine that Black women could have a better outcome. For me, the only ending was optimism. And the reason I ended the play that way is because of the women who I encountered when I was in East Africa, who despite sort of the trauma that they've been through, and despite all of the hardship, at the end of the day, they were able to access in small bursts their joy. Hmm. They were able to access laughter. They were able to survive for a reason. It's because they leaned into optimism. And I think that it would have been dishonest to end the play any other way. The bleak landscape that the critics imagined is not the Africa that I know. Hmm. Hmm. I know that you did on-the-ground reporting for this play, as you also did for Sweat, your 2017 Pulitzer winner. What appeals to you about that process in creating some of your work? Well, the, the process for Ruined evolved in a very organic way when I began 
thinking about writing this play and had discussions with director Kate Worski, what we discovered is that there wasn't a lot of information in newspapers or even research done about what was happening to women in the midst of the conflict at the Democratic Republic of Congo. And we recognized that if we were going to build the story in authentic ways, that we had to actually go to the source and find the women and interview them. And so I think that the interviewing process really came out of necessity. And I found that there was something really rewarding about entering an unfamiliar space and delving deeply into a subject matter. It's something that I had never done prior to that. It's like I'd done research in the libraries, but I had never actually ventured into a different space to find the story. How did you go about finding the women that you ended up talking to? In a previous incarnation, I had worked at Amnesty International for a number of years Mm -hmm. and had forged a lot of relationships, not just in America, but internationally. And when we decided that we were going to go to East Africa, the first phone calls that I made was to colleagues at Amnesty International and explained that we're interested in interviewing refugee women who are fleeing the conflict in the DRC. I asked them whether they can help us. In some instances, they could and were really instrumental in helping us not only find women, but helping us also translate those interviews and serve as interpreters. I feel as though... Some of your work requires a real-world response. Do you feel as though people have become more responsive or at least more aware of the plight of women like those in Ruined? Have you had any evidence of that? I can certainly attest to the fact that Ruin had an impact and that we were able through the play to amplify the voices of women in the DRC. We brought our cast to Washington. I spoke at Parliament. We were able to raise money after many of our productions for Pansy Hospital in in the DRC. But the complicated thing and what I wrestle with is now that there's some distance between when I produced the play and and this moment is that women are still struggling in DRC. They're still being raped. Their bodies are still being used as tools in armed conflicts. And yet it has fallen off the front pages of the paper. And so I think for a moment we were able to shine a light on what was happening But the play isn't done anymore, and the conversation isn't being had, and I think that's kind of tragic. Do you think it has something to do with the dilemma that some people have felt about Black joy versus Black trauma? I think that the subject matter is tough, and I think that, in in part, that there are different types of plays that are in demand in this moment. And I think also that the play is large. It has 15 people. (laughs) And that there are some economic realities that have prevented the play from being more successful in this moment. But I also do think that there's a certain segment of the population that just doesn't want to welcome those conversations onto the main stage. Or even women in general onto the the main stage. When I talked with Paula Vogel 
she and I talked about the representation of women's voices, particularly on the main commercial stage of Broadway. Yeah, it's been an incredible uphill battle. Paula and I shared a season. She was doing Indecent and I was doing Sweat. And we would commiserate because we felt some of the critical response was quite harsh. And we thought in part it was gendered that they were serving as gatekeepers and weren't necessarily invested in the sort of characters that we wanted to play center stage and perhaps didn't even understand the complexity of the stories that we were telling because they centered women. And we can get into a deeper conversation about, you know, who are the critics who are responding to our work? They are really sort of shaping the sensibilities of audiences. And yet, by and large, they have remained white men. I know that over the last few years, we've lost many of our playwrights to television and to movies, including many female voices and many voices of people of color. But you keep coming back to the stage. What continues to draw you back? I remain absolutely invested in having a conversation with audiences. I'm interested in the kind of communal experience that can only happen when you have an exchange of energy in a space. I think that there's something that happens to one's DNA when they're in proximity to others and they share laughter or when they share deep feelings. And that's something that can happen when you're sitting by yourself in your living room watching television. And I think now more than ever, because we are such a fractured culture, and we're a culture that is being shaped by the rapidness of social media, that there's something beautiful about the slow burn of a play in which you have to sit still for two hours. You have to silence your cell phone. You have to focus your energy. You have to listen. And that is something that's becoming an incredible rarity in this day and age. And I think in part, that's why I remain invested in being a theater artist. Well, we're obviously delighted that you have made that choice. And again, I want to thank you for talking with us about Ruined, and I want to also congratulate you on this recent revival of your first produced play, Crumbs from the Table of Joy, now playing at Keene. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here with you. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll come back next time. And if you have any comments questions, or suggestions, please send them to me at jan at broadwayradio.com.